We're looking this morning at John chapter 2, as we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are looking at the end of John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, and we are reading down to uh, John chapter 13, and actually I'd like for us to include verse 14. I kind of vacillated where to make the break this week, and decided to include verse 14. It's, it's sort of hard. I, I don't know if you know this, but chapter and verse divisions are not inspired by God. Actually, they are the product of one man, and, and Spurgeon said he must have done it on a choppy river in England because he did a right choppy job of it. And so um, it's always good for us to try, to try to disabuse ourselves of being bound by chapter and verse divisions. They're helpful in us marking where things are in God's word. They're not so helpful in us getting the context and the flow of God's word. And actually, I believe John chapter 2, verses uh, 23 uh, through 25 go with everything that goes into chapter 3, and we often miss that. So I want us to look this morning at John chapter 2, 23 to chapter 3, verse 14. You'll, You'll find it helpful to have a copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me, and you can also find this printed in your bulletin. And here now, John, having given us the first miracle of Jesus at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, and then giving us Jesus's cleansing of the temple there in Jerusalem, that powerful act by which he showed he was the Lord of the temple. Now we read this in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Literally, it says Jesus did not believe in them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know if you know this, but one of the greatest itinerant preachers 
in the history of the Western world, made his way to the Low Country and then to the coastal empire of Georgia in the 18th century. George Whitfield had come here to preach the gospel. He was heading down to that um, colony in Georgia that was led by General Oglethorpe. And uh, what you may not know about Whitfield, though you probably know that Whitfield became one of the greatest itinerant preachers in the history of the church, was that for a long time, George Whitfield and his two companions, the Wesley brothers, who were also in this area of America, were part of a group at um, Oxford when they were at Pembroke College. They were part of a group called the Holy Club. And they were young men. They were zealous for the Christian faith. They were zealous to be as disciplined as they could. They were as zealous to be as pious and holy as they could. They called this club the Holy Club, and, and they met every Wednesday and every Friday until 3 p.m., and they would, and Whitfield tells us this, they would sing psalms three times a day, they would fast every Friday, and they would receive the sacrament once a month. They, they were beginning to set out what would become part of Methodism in the Holy Club, the methods of spiritual disciplines. And, and yet what you may not know about these young men who were in this Holy Club was that all of them were unconverted. They were probably more disciplined than you are in their spiritual practices of reading the word and prayer and singing and, and denying themselves, and yet not one of them knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Whitfield will actually give an account of this, and he will talk about how he found a little book by Henry Skugel called The Life of God and the Soul of Men, and he realized that he had never been born again, that he had never had his old dead, rotten, black heart taken out, and he had never been made a new man. He thought that religion existed just in, in disciplines or opinions about how to be different than the world. And, and, and Whitfield wrote this. He said, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. Now, Whitfield would go on to have a very powerful ministry, as I've noted, and one of the things that Whitfield is known for is how often he preached to thousands upon thousands, ten thousands of people on John chapter 3, this passage that we're looking at this morning. And on one occasion, a reporter came up to Whitfield and he said, Mr. Whitfield, why do you preach so much on you must be born again? And Whitfield responded, because you must be born again. Now, Whitfield was merely echoing what the Savior tells Nicodemus here. And we have a very interesting account. We have one of the foremost religious leaders in Israel, perhaps the foremost. Jesus will actually say to him at one point, are you not the teacher in Israel? He, he was no doubt a man of incredible religious stature. He knew the word. He knew the law of God. He knew the Old Testament, or so he thought. He led the people of God in worship. He, he was one, he was the sort of man that if people wanted to know things, they went to Nicodemus. And yet something was wrong in Nicodemus's soul, and he realized that there was something missing. And as he was hearing about the signs of Jesus, he made his way to Jesus by cover of night, because he realized there's something that this man has that I don't have. There's something that I am lacking, even though I am so disciplined and so zealous in matters of biblical religion. 
And what I want us to look at this morning, I want us to see three things as we consider this passage together. First, I want us to consider the necessity of the new birth, why there's a need, the necessity of the new birth. I want us to then consider the agent of the new birth, and then I want us to consider the object, the necessity of the agent and the object of the new birth. Well, notice uh, as soon as Jesus has cleansed the temple and explained how that's pointing to what he's going to do on the cross, we're told that he was in Jerusalem and, and many were believing in him. Now, one of the things you may not know is that in John's gospel, there are two different kinds of believing when he uses this word. Now, it's the same word. But, but there are times where some are said to believe in Jesus. In John chapter 6, many believed in him. But then when he said hard things, they turned around and followed him no more. Now, this was not saving faith. This was not saving trust in Jesus. This was, this was a, a temporary sort of intellectual ascent. This was people seeing his works. They were seeing the crowds. They were seeing the excitement. They were excited. They, for a time, seemed to want to commit themselves to him. But, but they didn't really trust in him. They weren't really seeing him as the only savior of their souls that they needed. And so notice what John says, that many were believing in him when they saw the signs that he was doing. And no doubt he had done more signs after the, the, the wedding of Cana, and they had seen them, and, and his power had been displayed. And, and they were sort of temporarily wanting to follow him. But notice what John says, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them. Now, I love this. You know, we live in a culture that says, believe in yourself. And, and the Bible says, don't believe in yourself. In fact, Jesus doesn't even believe in you. That's, that's what John's saying. Jesus does not believe in you. Jesus did not entrust himself to them because, John says, he knew all men and he knew what was in man. Now, that is simultaneously a frightening thought and a comforting thought. It's frightening because Jesus knows everything in me and you. And if that's not frightening, there's something horribly wrong with your own understanding of your depravity by nature. Because that is frightening to know that Jesus knows everything in every single person on the face of the earth, including you and me. It is a comforting thought because we realize that Jesus is separate from fallen humanity. There is a separateness of the Savior here. There is, there is one person who is different from all other men. And Jesus' testimony here is that all men are fallen in Adam, full of corruption, and thoroughly and pervasively sinful. Jesus is not flattered by men. By the way, flattery is one of the sins that never gets talked about in the church. Don't be a flatterer. Jesus, Jesus is not flattered by men. Jesus does not flatter people. Um, Jesus is on a mission from God, and he is not going to be, he's not going to be taken in as anyone's sort of company man. He's not going to become any religious group's boy to do their work. He is the unique Savior. He knows the hearts of men, and he knows what men are like. He, he didn't need anyone, John says, to bear witness about man. He himself knew what was in man. And, and now, and this is where the connection is made, Notice, if you took out the chapter and verse division, now John says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. And, and we're meant to connect those things. We're, we've just been told what people are like, 
And now with this account and the subsequent interactions with Jesus with certain individuals, John is going to give us a display of what every one of us is like by nature. And it's very interesting, the very first example of what man is by nature, depraved, lacking spiritual sight, spiritual understanding, just like George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers when they were part of the Holy Club, is one of the most religious teachers in Israel. By the way, there is nothing more dangerous than to be unregenerate and to be religiously devoted. Um, a lot of the old theologians said it is the hardest person in the world to come off of their self-righteousness when they are unregenerate and religious because they think they're fine. Um, you know, we live in a lawless culture, so we, we tend to want to talk about what's wrong with all the lawlessness, and yet every one of our hearts is deeply hardwired to self-righteousness by nature every one of us. When we're not even thinking about it, we act self-righteously. Um, Nicodemus is an example of that. Uh, he, is, he is an example of a man who has gone very, very far in religion and yet does not know the first step of true religion in the soul. Um, now, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that when, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus, there is both something admirable and something criticizable about what's happening. There's something admirable. I mean, we have to like Nicodemus, don't we? I like Nicodemus here. He's not converted yet, but, but he's not like the other Pharisees who are always trying to kill Jesus. There's something inquisitive about him. He's willing, even though he does it under cloak of night, he's willing to go to Jesus and ask him questions and, and seems as though he wants to learn from him. There, there's something admirable and likable about Nicodemus that we don't really get that same sense about with the other religious leaders in Israel who really don't want to learn from Jesus. And, and yet, there's something criticizable about Nicodemus. Lloyd-Jones says this. He said, Nicodemus felt as though he was in charge of himself, and that is always fatal. Nicodemus felt like he was in charge of himself, and that is always fatal. He approached our Lord as a teacher, not as a savior. Isn't that interesting? His approach to Jesus is not a, an approach for salvation. It's merely an approach to learn some more things from this guy I think I can learn things from. Nicodemus still thinks his own life is in his own possession. Now, that, that is the fundamental problem, isn't it? By, by nature, we think our lives are in our own hands, that we control our lives, that I'm in charge of my own life. And, and by nature, none of us wants to relinquish that. I know that was true for me when I was converted at 24, though my life was a train wreck, I felt like I was in charge of that train wreck. Um, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, Jesus is going to pick up on what John has said about what man is like here in this chapter. Notice Nicodemus comes to him. Jesus is not flattered by Nicodemus. Nicodemus is going to approach Jesus and call him teacher and tell him, we know that you must be from God because you're doing these signs. God must be with you. There is something different about you. 
He doesn't say you must be God. He doesn't say I am face to face with the one who said I am the truth. He doesn't say you are the savior of the world. He, he is just initiating a conversation. And, and notice what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying, by nature, all people born by ordinary generation from our first parents are sinful, depraved flesh. That's all we are. That's all we can be. There's no option. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no opting out. There's no trap door for what we are by nature. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Now, why am I spending so much time on depravity this morning and on the inability of man to change himself? You know, people will often say, they will often say, you know, you can't change human nature. And that's true. You can't change human nature, but Jesus can. And that's the point of this account. Nicodemus doesn't even realize he's setting up Jesus to teach one of the most important truths that anyone could ever hear in their life on earth. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican commentator, says, there are many things about which a man or woman may be ignorant in this life and yet be saved, but the matters taken up in this chapter are of such importance that if we do not come to terms with them, we are on the broad road that leads to destruction. These are the most important things. Isn't it interesting? Jesus has not taught one doctrine in John's gospel yet. This is the very first doctrine that Jesus ever teaches, and he tells us it's the doctrine of regeneration, the new birth, the recreation, the renewal of those who are dead in sins and trespasses. Because at the end of the day, what we need more than anything is not first and foremost sanctification. By the way, there are many people who are aiming for sanctification, just like Whitfield, who have never experienced regeneration or justification. That is, that is a fatal error for men and women to aim for renewal in their lives and moral reformation without experiencing the new birth or being justified freely by the grace of God. And so it's interesting, Jesus' first doctrine in John's Gospel is essentially that most important doctrine. You must be born again. Now, a lot of us, if we're old enough, we're leavened by uh, the 1980s use of this. I think the first time it came about, D.A. Carson points this out, is that um, Dotson, which I would never recommend you get a Dotson. I'm sorry if you had one. I'm not trying to criticize you, but it had changed to Nissan, and, and they had an ad that said that the Dotson has been reborn, that, that this was, it had been born again. And, and, then, uh, and then news reporters and others started to mock evangelical Christians, say, well, those are the born-again Christians. And then it became a, a phrase that other Christians wanted to use to distinguish themselves from Roman Catholics and everybody that uh, is outside of gospel-centered biblical Christian fellowships. And, well, I'm a born-again Christian. Well, look, there's only one kind of Christian. You are either born again or you are not. <laughs> Uh, there, is, there is no such thing as a Christian who has not experienced the new birth. Um, Jesus says this very definitively. He says twice to Nicodemus. As Nicodemus is not understanding what he's saying, he says twice, unless you are born again, you cannot 
It is an absolute necessity. Now, um, Nicodemus doesn't understand anything Jesus is talking about. Notice that when Jesus tells him in verse 3, truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and keep in mind, Jesus is bringing the kingdom. He is the king. He's right in front of Nicodemus. He's right there in the flesh. And Nicodemus can't see who he is. He says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God with the eyes of faith. I remember as a young Christian, newly regenerated, sitting on a couch and reading the parable of the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field. And I remember seeing the Lord Jesus as the treasure in the field with the eyes of faith for the first time in my life. And I remember thinking he's been right there the whole time and I couldn't see him. That's what Jesus means when he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see. You cannot see truly in the depths of your soul. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You can have a head full of knowledge. I had that. But you don't have any spiritual sight of who the Lord Jesus is. And then notice Nicodemus shows the very thing that Jesus is telling him. He says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He thinks Jesus is talking about physical things because all external religion, all, all non-truly spiritual Christian religion is focused on externals. It's focused on everything out there. It's focused on all of the things we can see physically. It's not, it's, not, it's not spiritual in any way, shape, or form. So Nicodemus thinks he's speaking physically. How can a man be born again? He, he understands the conundrum, doesn't he? Isn't this interesting? Nicodemus understands that what Jesus is saying is impossible, that he doesn't have in himself what he needs to make it happen. He says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he go back in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus again says to him a second time, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a difficult phrase. Jesus is, no doubt, referring back to Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, where God promised in the new covenant he was going to send the Spirit and under figurative language, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wash you with pure water. I'm going to cleanse you. There's going to be a spiritual renewal by my spirit. And, and he, he, I think, is alluding to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, because he will say to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? You should know what was predicted in the prophets. You should know that there was a day coming when the Spirit would be poured out, when God would renew his people, when he would bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life, when those dry bones in Ezekiel would be brought back to life and, and new life would be breathed into them. And, and Jesus is telling him, don't you know, don't you know that unless that happens, no one will enter the kingdom? Well, Nicodemus um, doesn't understand. Notice verse 9 again, showing more of his need for this regeneration. Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? How can these things be? Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know this? Now notice verse 11, Jesus says, we speak what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, 
but you do not receive our testimony. Now, Nicodemus had come to Jesus, and he had come sort of as a representative of the religious leaders. He said, we know that you're a teacher in Israel. He doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. Now, Jesus responds to him by saying, we, speaking about his father himself in the spirit, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our testimony. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, everything I'm telling you is heavenly in origin. Everything that is revealed in scripture is eternal in the heart of God and is revealed to us from heaven itself and therefore can only be understood if we are born from above. Um, you know, as I preach on these things, I often think, how will people receive this? I mean, I'm essentially telling you, you can't do anything to change yourself. That is what I'm telling us. There's not one thing you can do. And that's hard. That's hard because that takes it entirely out of your hands and my hands. And this is why people didn't like what Jesus taught. And yet, at the end of the, the day, redemption is singularly the work of God. It is sovereignly the work of God. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that unless this happens to you, you will never be able to really know and see. But he's not telling Nicodemus to do anything. He's not saying, so Nicodemus, now here's what you need to do. In fact, he will now talk about the agent of the new birth. Now, I want us to consider this secondly, the agent of the new birth. Jesus has already alluded when he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom, he cannot enter the kingdom. Um, and, and as he develops this with Nicodemus, now he talks about the sovereignty of the Spirit of God in the work of regeneration. He says, uh, as the wind, you see the wind, it blows every direction, you, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's saying, when a man or a woman, a boy or a girl is born again, People don't know how it happened. The spirit comes like the wind. And he, he almost imperceptibly regenerates. And he, he takes out the old, sinful, corrupt nature and he breathes new life into his people. And, and people see a change. I don't know if this was true for you. I remember after I was converted for several years, old friends would meet some of my new Christian friends in different cities in which I lived. And they said, are are we sure this is the same Nick we're talking about? The, the wind blows and changes your heart, and you're different. And people see that difference, but they, they don't know how it happens, and, and we don't even fully know how it happens. The Spirit is sovereign in the work of regeneration. Um, now, we know a whole lot more. We know that God regenerates every one of the elect. We know about the work of the Spirit as he is progressively developed throughout the New Testament. We know that the Spirit belongs to Christ. We know that he is the Spirit of Christ. Um, we know that he indwells his people. We know 
remember, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. We know that the Spirit is the agent of the cleansing of the people of God. Jesus is essentially giving us a picture in this conversation of, of what it means to be cleansed as the temple of God. We, we, we learn all those things, but, but there's something you can only learn by experience. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but until the Holy Spirit comes and takes out that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, you can't truly understand any of this. Now, how, how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, you are to ask yourself, am I born again? Have I ever been born again? That's a question you should be asking yourself right now. Have I ever been born of God's Spirit? Do I understand the things of Scripture spiritually? Do I see the Lord Jesus? Um, am I eager to trust him as the only Savior of sinners? Do I realize that he is the truth? Do I understand that his teaching is heavenly in its origin? Um, that was a question I had to ask myself right before I was converted, and I believe when you really and truly begin to ask yourself that question, if you are unconverted, that is the moment God is beginning to work in you and is going to bring about that which he will do sovereignly in his people. Um, Nicodemus couldn't understand these things, but God enables us to as his spirit comes and changes us. Now, you know, it's interesting. We, we don't know if Nicodemus is converted here. This is actually one of the most fascinating parts of this passage. It's the most significant discourse in the Bible on the doctrine of regeneration. And yet at the end of it, you don't know whether Nicodemus is converted or not. Why? Well, as I've just said, you're supposed to ask yourself the question, have I been born again? It's not, has Nicodemus been born again? That's why John leaves us hanging. That's one of the big reasons. There is yet another reason. Nicodemus will show up two more times in this gospel. He'll show up in chapter 7 when he is sort of defending Jesus. The officers have come back who were supposed to take Jesus, and they, the, the Pharisees say, why didn't you take him? And he said, because nobody ever spoke like this man. And, and then Nicodemus says, does our law judge a man before it condemns him? And he sort of seems like he's defending Jesus a little bit. And then at the end of the gospel, where is Nicodemus? He's taking the body of the Savior, isn't he? He's taking the body of Christ, and you know he's been born of the Spirit. You know that he has undergone the regenerating work of the Spirit. You know he is not coming by cover of night. He is coming at a moment when it was most dangerous to show public fidelity to Jesus, and he is coming and taking the body of the Savior to anoint him for burial. And that also teaches us that regeneration may not be this magic moment in your life where you can point to the day and the hour and the second when you were born again, but that sometimes it looks like perhaps it was progressive in nature, that we don't know when he was converted, but we know he was. It's really remarkable, isn't it, how much is layered into this account for us. Um, we learn, as J.C. Ryle says, that Nicodemus received a new nature, new habits of life, new tastes, new desires, new appetites, new judgments, new opinions, 
new hopes and new fears. He says all of this and nothing less is employed, implied when our Lord declares that we need a new birth. A new birth. Now, third, and very briefly, notice where John is taking this account. He is now taking it to the object of the new birth. We've already said that Jesus brings the kingdom of God, that he is the king of the kingdom of God. And yet notice, notice verse 13, Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven. He's speaking about himself, except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Some manuscripts wrongly say who is even in heaven, but no one has ascended to heaven except he who descends, except he who descends from heaven, even the son of man. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you know this account, numbers, the people act sinfully, because that's what people do. They rebel, because that's what they always did. God sends fiery serpents to bite them, to remind them of their sinfulness. A bunch of them die. They cry out that God would have mercy on them. The Lord says, to Moses, make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a pole, and whoever looks at that serpent will be healed. And Jesus here says that he is the serpent on the pole, that he would become sin for his people, that he would be lifted up, that whoever just looks at him with the eyes of faith would be saved. By the way, that's it. That's it. All you have to do is look by faith, and you'll be healed. He's saying, I am the object that all those who have been born of the Spirit of God are enabled to look at. When the Lord regenerates us, the first thing we see is Christ crucified for our sins. And we just cast our eyes on the Savior. Um... I don't know about you, but oftentimes when young Christians are converted, all they want to do is sing about the cross. Um, my best, one of my best friends and I used to lock ourselves in um, the seminary building that we were young seminarians in, and we would sing at the top of our lungs, Jesus, keep me near the cross. That's what, that's what Christians want. They see the Savior lifted up. They see my sin imputed to him. And they, they don't want to take their eyes off that because they have experienced the healing that he gives when you are enabled to see him. I want to leave you with these thoughts this morning. I want to ask you, first of all, if you have ever come to terms with your own depravity. I think John would have us do that. He would have us come to terms with the fact that by nature we are just flesh, that we are we are thoroughly corrupt. If, if we never come to terms with that, we will never come to see our need for a Savior. And then I want to ask you, if you ever asked yourself, have I been born again? Have I been regenerated? That's, a, that's an essential question. Have I experienced the new birth? Um, and then I want to remind you that if you have, 
then you see with the eyes of faith the one who was lifted up as the serpent on the pole so that your sinful soul might be healed by the simple act of looking to him by faith. You know, you can't do that in your own soul, and I can't do it in your soul, but praise God, he is doing that in the lives of his people, that he has been doing it since before the Lord Jesus even came into the world, and that he's doing it this very day. That's the only confidence that we have. Otherwise, all of this is futile. Unless we believe God is doing the very thing that Jesus said must be done. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge our sinfulness. We acknowledge that we are born dead in sins and trespasses. We acknowledge this morning that we um, are entirely subject to the sovereign working of your spirit in giving new life and the new birth. And we do pray, O oh God, that you would grant that new birth, that if there are any here this morning who have not experienced it, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do a great heart work in the lives of your people as you did in Nicodemus. We pray that you would open all of the eyes of our hearts that we might see you lifted up on the cross, that we might fix our eyes on you and that we might be healed of the bitter sting of sin. Lord, we pray that you would do this work among us for your name's sake and for our eternal salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name.